So all the children are sitting very close around Tai, and Tai is asking, does everybody speak French? If you only understand Spanish, you need earphones. English, Spanish, you need to wear. French, Spanish. Breathing in, I feel calm. Breathing out, I smile. Calm. is interesting and easy. And even if we're young, we can meditate. Today we're going to meditate on a corn seed, a grain of corn. Can you see this little kernel of corn in my fingers? I have hundreds of them here in my box. Meditating means having the time to look, to listen. Because this little kernel has something to show us. This little seed has something to tell us. So we need to pay attention. We need to have the time to be able to really look, to be able to really listen and to understand. This kernel of corn, this little seed, knows how to do many things. There is knowledge in the seed. There are feelings, sensations in the seed. And the seed can also suffer, like all of us. 
So this little kernel of corn is not just inert matter, this is a living thing. There is knowledge in the seed. There are sensations in it. There's wisdom in it because it knows how to make leaves, flowers, and also whole ears of corn. So there is knowledge we should respect, we should we need to show a lot of respect. We should say, dear little corn kernel, even if you're very small, I know you have a lot of knowledge. You know how to make leaves. You know how to make ears of corn. And thanks to you, we have corn to eat. Thank you, little seed. One time in Italy, I handed out little corn seeds to all the children during a retreat so they could take the seed back home and plant it in a little pot. And when that seed grew into a plant, they were to go and talk with that plant, to talk with the plant. So here next to me is a corn plant. A sister planted the seed some weeks ago. And when the corn plant manifests like this, we can come and talk with the plant. My dear little corn plant, do you remember the time when you were a tiny little seed? That's the question we can ask the corn plant. My dear little corn plant, do you remember the time when you were just a little seed? What will the plant say? We have to listen. And if you listen very well, you might hear something like this. Dear Tai, dear friends, me, a little seed? I don't believe it. I don't remember that. The plant has completely forgotten. She doesn't believe that she was ever a tiny little seed. And you can say, dear plant, I, I put that little seed in this pot of soil and I watered that seed every day. And after five days, you sprouted and you became a tiny little plant and now you're a bit bigger. And if we are very convinced and we speak well, then the plant might believe us. And the plant will know that it was once just a little seed like this little kernel here. So, has that little seed died? We don't see it anymore. Has that corn seed died? The answer is no. 
Because if the seed would, would have died, there wouldn't be any corn plant. It's still alive in the corn plant. But we don't see the seed anymore in the form of a seed. If we look deeply, if we practice meditation, when we look at the plant, we can still see the seed. Can you see the seed in the plant now? I can see the seed in the plant because the plant is a continuation of the seed. Dear plant, I know that you are a continuation of that little seed. And when I look at you, I see the seed in you. That seed is still alive. And someone who practices meditation can see things like this that other people cannot see. With meditation, we will be able to see things that others cannot see. If we look, if we look deeply, we can see the existence, the presence of that little seed right here in this plant. We know that the seed is still alive. It has simply taken a new form, the form of a plant, and this plant will eventually produce ears of corn with many seeds. Look, look again. Look at this leaf. This leaf looks a little bit smaller than the other leaves, but in fact it's the elder sister of the other leaves, because this leaf manifested before the others did. This one came and saw the light of day before the others, right? It, it came to life before the other one, but it's smaller. So we have to call this little leaf the big sister, even if this leaf is smaller than we are. And do you think this leaf will die? Yes or no? We have to look deeply to be able to supply an answer. In a few days, in just a few days, this leaf is going to wilt and dry up. We might say that this first leaf has then died, and we might feel sad. But if we look deeply, we will see we will see things very interesting. For days and nights, day and night, this leaf has worked. It breathed, it received the sunlight, it received the water, the minerals from the soil, and it nourished its younger brothers and sister leaves. It worked, it breathed, it helped to nourish the whole plant, 
and its younger, younger leaves, siblings. So if we look deeply, we can see that this first leaf is also present in the other leaves. It's there in its little sister. And it's in this other leaf, and in this leaf. So even after this leaf dries up, it still lives on. It never will die. It will live on in its other sibling leaves and in the whole plant. And when the ear of corn presents itself, this leaf will also be in that ear of corn. So when you eat an ear of corn, you should say something like this. Dear little leaf, first leaf, I know you're still here, alive, and thanks to you, I have this ear of corn to eat today. When we look at a child, what do we see? Look, look. You see your attention. You'll see that in the child there is the dad and the mom. <coughs> Don't think that the dad and the mom are outside of this child. They are inside this child. And if you are a practitioner of meditation, you can see the presence of the dad right here in the child. You can see the presence of the mom in the child. So we can say, Dad, I know you're in me too. And I carry you day and night in my own body. This is very scientific, very accurate. And we can say, Mom, I know you're there and I know you're also in me and I carry you in me day and night. So for people who practice meditation, they can see things that other people cannot see. I see her dad. I see her mom. And I also see her other ancestors. And I, being a practitioner, I can already see her children and her grandchildren in her. We can see the past and we can see the future because we know how to meditate. So looking into the corn plant, we see the seed and we see the ancestors of this plant. Looking into this little girl, we see her dad, her mom, and her ancestors, as well as her children and her grandchildren. Okay, tomorrow we will continue, okay? Children, when you hear the sound of the small bell, you can stand up and bow to the Sangha before you go out to continue with your children's program. Bow to the Sangha. And you can go out.
Good morning, dear friends. Today is July the 16th in the year 2013, and we are in the second week of our summer retreat. We are in the Stillwater Meditation Hall of the Upper Hamlet. The exercises of the full awareness of breathing are very simple but they can have a very profound effect on us, in us. The first exercise is breathing in. I know that this is an in-breath that's happening. Breathing out, we know that this is an out-breath that's happening. This is pure, simple recognition of the in and out-breath because we focus our attention on the breathing, the in-breath we know is an in-breath, we recognize it. So we can say that this exercise for being aware, for recognizing, the first exercise is recognizing in-breath as in-breath and out-breath as out-breath. And we know very well that when we bring our attention on our in-breath, the sole object of our mind is that in-breath. And if we concentrate on that in-breath, we release everything else. We let go of the past, the future, our projects, and we're free. So the first exercise, even though it may be very simple, just recognizing 
in-breath and out-breath can already bring a lot of freedom. Freedom from regrets about the past, fear about the future. So freedom is something that we can acquire through recognizing in-breath as in-breath. And when you are concentrated on your in-breath, you become the in-breath. You and the in-breath become one. And it's possible to enjoy our in-breath. An in-breath is something very pleasant. And when we breathe in, we can also generate the energy of concentration and insight. In Buddhism, we speak of enlightenment, awakening, of wisdom, perfect wisdom, perfect understanding as an aim of the practice. Buddhist meditation is made of three kinds of energy. The energy of mindfulness, is an energy that allows us to be aware of what is going on in the present moment. The energy of mindfulness allows you to know, to recognize what is happening in the present moment. In our body, in our feelings, in our perceptions, and in the world around us. That's mindfulness, and it is this energy that allows us to see, to recognize what is going on. So in this case, what is happening is an in-breath, breathing in. I know that what's happening right now is an in-breath, and we can enjoy the in-breath. And while we breathe in, we can generate the energy of mindfulness to recognize the in-breath, and at the same time we can generate the energy of concentration. When, because you have brought your attention to your in-breath, you are also concentrating on your in-breath. If you're really concentrated, then you can also obtain wisdom, awakening, enlightenment right away. Wisdom, insight is the third energy. When you bring your attention to your in-breath and you breathe with concentration, you're able to see things. First of all, you can see that you're alive. 
you're here, alive. And that insight may come right away. We don't have to practice for three weeks or three months to acquire this wisdom. It's simple. Because a person who is dead cannot breathe in. I am breathing in. I am alive. And to be alive is something wonderful. It's a miracle. The greatest miracle is to be alive. Breathing in, I know I'm alive. I'm here. I recognize my presence. So this insight, this wisdom is possible right away. After just one or two seconds of practice, we only need two or three seconds to breathe in, and during that time we can acquire wisdom already, and that wisdom can liberate us and bring us a lot of joy. Breathing in, I am aware of this Mother Earth, this planet. Maybe you haven't taken the time to realize that this magnificent planet is here for you. So mindfulness and concentration can help you to have this wisdom, this awakening, this enlightenment very quickly. Breathing in, I know I'm alive. I know that to be still alive is a miracle. And with that knowledge, with that insight, you can already enjoy your out-breath joyfully. Breathing out, I smile. I smile to life, to the wonders of life that are here. So these three kinds of energy are generated by a practitioner throughout daily life, when we walk, when we breathe, when we drive the car, when we wash the dishes, we can always generate these three kinds of energy that allow us to be there in the moment, in touch with the wonders of life, and to enjoy every moment that is given us to live. We need to appreciate every moment that is given us to live. And with the energy of mindfulness, we can do it. Appreciate every moment of daily life, not to waste life. 
So this first exercise, even though it may be very simple, it can do a lot. It can offer a lot. Mindfulness and concentration and insight and joy. Second exercise, breathing in. I follow my in-breath for the whole length of the in-breath. The in-breath may last three or four seconds, and during that time, I am completely concentrated on the in-breath. The in-breath is the sole object of my mind. I don't think about anything. I just focus on the in-breath. So breathing in, I follow my in-breath, the whole length of the in-breath. So the second exercise is following. And as we are following the in-breath, we are cultivating concentration, and concentration always brings insight, awakening. And it also brings us pleasure, and this insight has the power to liberate us. We will see later. So breathing in, I follow my in-breath all the way from the beginning to the end. Breathing out, I follow the whole length of my out-breath. And we can do that with a lot of pleasure. The third exercise, breathing in. I know that my body is here. Recognizing the body. With your in-breath, you bring the mind back to the body. In daily life, very often, life is here, but our mind is elsewhere, in the past, in the future, in our projects, in the computer. So, one in-breath in mindfulness can help to bring the mind back to the body. And when mind and body are together, you are established in the present moment, and you can get in touch with all the wonders of life to be able to nourish and heal yourself. 
So when we breathe in, we can focus our attention not just on the breath itself, but also on the body. Breathing in, I know that I have a body. It's a happy reunion between mind and body. When the body is with the mind, then you're really alive. When the mind is not with the body, that is not true life. Breathing in, I'm aware of my body. Breathing out, I smile to my body. I make peace with my body. Maybe we have neglected our body too much. We have not been very nice to our body. We've allowed a lot of tension and pain to accumulate in our body. So let us come back to the body to be able to help the body to suffer less. We've been eating, we've been drinking, we've been working in a way that has caused our body to suffer a lot. So one in-breath in mindfulness can bring the mind back to the body and bring a reconciliation between the mind and the body. Breathing in, I'm aware of my body. Breathing out, I smile to my body. That is a smile of reconciliation. We should be kind to our body. In Buddhism, there's the practice of contemplation of the body, the body as a whole and the body in its distinct parts. Breathing in, I'm aware of my heart. The heart is a part of the body. Breathing out, I smile to my heart. You have attention, concentration that you are directing toward your heart. And you may have an insight right away about your heart. Your heart is still working normally. That's a good thing. It's good news. It's a very good thing that your heart is still working normally. There are people who don't have a normal heart and their deepest wish is just to have a normal heart exactly like yours. And we may continue to have these kinds of insights. Perhaps we haven't been very nice to our heart. We may have drunk too much, smoked too much. We may have stayed up late at night, not slept enough. We haven't been very kind to our heart. 
Exercises were proposed by the Buddha for us to take care of our of ourselves. So this is an exercise for taking care of our body. So these first four exercises can be practiced at any time in any place. While you are cooking, you can practice these exercises. While we are meditating, we can also practice sitting. While we are bathing, the fifth exercise is the beginning of the section on mindfulness of feelings. So breathing in, I give rise to a feeling of joy. exercise is giving rise to a feeling of happiness. A meditation practitioner can generate a feeling the energy of joy at 
she wants to. Giving rise, generating to a feeling of generating a feeling of joy at any time is possible. Because when we practice breathing in and out with mindfulness, we bring the mind back to the body. And when the mind is with the body, when they're together, we are really established in the present moment. And in the present moment, we can get in touch with the wonders of life that are in us and around us. There are many conditions of happiness in us and around us. My heart, which is beating normally, that still works properly, that's a condition of happiness. My eyes, still in good condition, that's a condition of happiness. I only need to open my eyes to get in touch with this paradise of shapes and colors. So I have many conditions of happiness in me and around me. And it is thanks to mindfulness produced by the practice of mindful breathing. So when we get in touch with these conditions, the joy comes right away. And happiness as well. There's a French song, Qu'est-ce qu'on attend pour être heureux? What are we waiting for to be happy? The conditions of happiness are already here. More than enough conditions. If you take a sheet of paper and write down the conditions of happiness that you already have right now, one page will not be enough. Two pages will not be enough. Three pages will not be enough. And we may continue. We don't have to go looking for conditions of happiness in the future because in the present moment we have enough already. And with that insight, it is possible to generate joy and happiness anytime. We can do that for ourselves and we can help the other person to do the same thing. Darling, you know we're very lucky. There are so many conditions of happiness available to us, so we should enjoy this moment. Meditation is also the practice of happiness, of joy. This is to nourish us. Now the seventh exercise offered by the Buddha is recognizing a painful feeling, an unpleasant feeling. Recognizing painful feelings. So up here we recognize the joy. We produce the joy and here we recognize any unpleasant feeling that may be happening, that may be coming up. 
If that's what's happening, we should not try to banish it or suppress it. We want to breathe and recognize it. Breathing in, I know a painful feeling is here in me. You are mindfulness, but you are also the pain. So we should not be violent towards the pain. We want to recognize it and tenderly embrace it. My dear little suffering, I know you're here, and I'm going to take good care of you. Recognizing pain, the painful feeling, the strong emotion that has just come up. Someone who doesn't practice doesn't want to do that because they're too afraid of those feelings. They spend a lot of time trying to escape. They think it's not pleasant to be in touch with a painful feeling, but a practitioner acts in a different way. A practitioner who knows how to generate the energy of mindfulness equipped with that energy is no longer afraid. He or she can recognize the pain and embrace it. Because pain is an energy. If it is left all alone, unattended, it can ravage us, it can destroy us. But if another energy is there to recognize and embrace the painful feeling, then the situation is very different. So this smaller circle is the painful feeling, the energy of the painful feeling. And this larger embracing circle is the energy of mindfulness. So mindfulness is the energy that recognizes the pain and embraces the pain. And the eighth exercise is calming the painful feeling. When we know how to embrace the pain with tenderness, we can calm the pain. One energy taking care of the other energy. When the baby cries, when a baby suffers, her mother takes her into her arms with a lot of tenderness. She cradles the baby. And that is exactly what a practitioner does when there is a painful feeling manifesting. We have to be there for our pain. We need to recognize it and embrace it tenderly with the energy of mindfulness. And this energy is what we are cultivating in our daily life. When we wash our dishes, we wash dishes with mindfulness. When you drink tea, 
You can drink it with mindfulness. When you cook, do the cooking with mindfulness, and then you will have enough of this energy to be able to take care of the pain. A mom has a lot of tenderness. When she holds her baby in her arms, the energy of that tenderness penetrates into the body of the baby. Even if the mom doesn't know yet what is what is the problem, what's causing the baby's suffering, just the fact that she takes the baby into her arms with tenderness can already bring a relief. The baby suffers less in the arms of his mom. And the same is true with this. Your pain is the baby. And if the baby is embraced by the energy of mindfulness, the baby suffers less, you can calm the pain. That's the, the object of the eighth exercise, calming a painful feeling. So a practitioner knows how to take care of suffering. A practitioner doesn't try to run away from, to escape from suffering. A practitioner knows how to take care of suffering, how to handle it through the energy of mindfulness. After having cradled the baby for some moments, the mom may detect, she may find out the cause of the suffering in the baby, and a practitioner can do the same thing. While we are cradling our suffering with mindfulness and with concentration, we will be able to recognize the nature the roots, the causes of that suffering, and then after that, we can change the situation. That's what a mom does. If the baby is hungry, she gets the bottle. If the baby is cold, she gets a blanket, and so on. So a practitioner does exactly the same thing. The practitioner considers his or her pain as his or her own baby. And the practitioner takes care of their baby, calms the pain, and transforms that suffering. So the exercises that follow these eight show us the ways to look deeply in order to understand our suffering as a way of transforming it. So meditating is not exactly praying. Meditating is generating a kind of energy to be able to produce joy, to produce happiness, and to handle, to take care of the suffering. And a meditation practitioner should know how to do these things.
the art of happiness. We have to learn it with mindfulness. We can recognize the conditions of happiness that are already there. And we can bring about happiness right away. And we need to help our partner to do the same. Happiness and joy are possible with mindfulness because mindfulness allows us to recognize the conditions of happiness that are already available. So the art of happiness is possible with the practice. And a practitioner also needs to know how to take care of a painful feeling. We need to know how to suffer. We need to learn how to suffer. This is also an art. If we know the right way to suffer, we suffer much less. If we know how to suffer, we suffer much less. And we know that with mindfulness, with concentration, we will be able to suffer less. And we will be able to make use of that suffering to produce happiness. A person who knows how to suffer suffers less and knows how to make good use of the suffering to produce joy and happiness. It's like the mud and the lotus. We know the lotus cannot grow on marble. The lotus needs to have mud to be able to grow. No mud, no lotus. No suffering, no happiness. It's the same thing. There is a very profound connection between suffering and happiness. It's like the left and the right. The left cannot exist without the right. Happiness cannot exist without suffering. It's just like organic gardening. When we are doing organic gardening, we keep we keep the garbage because vegetables are organic and the garbage is also organic. So the organic gardener knows how to make use of the garbage in order to make compost to nourish the flowers and vegetables. So a practitioner does exactly the same thing. The practitioner knows how 
to, to take care of the garbage of suffering. She knows how to use mud to produce lotus flowers. So he doesn't throw garbage out the window. He keeps it to make compost out of it. The practitioner is intelligent. She knows the right way to suffer. And when she knows how to suffer, she suffers much less. And she can also make good use of that suffering to produce joy and happiness. speak, for example, of hunger. It is only hunger that allows us to recognize the pleasure of eating. If there's no hunger, there's no pleasure in satisfying our hunger. There is a very deep connection between suffering and happiness. We have learned this already yesterday. <coughs> the Buddha's teaching is based on the Four Noble Truths. The first truth is of suffering, ill-being. Buddha's friend, because the Buddha said, suffering is there as a reality. <clears throat> but it is a noble truth. What's so noble about suffering? It's because when we look into suffering, when we look deeply into suffering, we can see the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And if we don't look there, if we look around elsewhere, we won't see the path. So that's why suffering is a noble truth. The third noble truth is the opposite 
of ill-being, it means well-being. Traditionally, it's called the cessation of suffering. The cessation of ill-being. The cessation of ill-being means the presence of well-being, just like the absence of darkness means the presence of light, right? It's the same thing. So these four truths speak not only about suffering, but also about happiness. And there is a path, a way, leading to suffering. We suffer because we have lived in such a way. So looking into the nature of ill-being, we can see the second noble truth, which is the path leading to ill-being, the roots of the ill-being, the nature, the source, the causes. Sometimes we say the path leading to ill-being. And when we look deeply into ill-being, we can see the roots of that ill-being. Just like when we look into the corn plant, we can see the seed of corn. When we look at the child, we can see the dad and the mom and the ancestors. So meditation is looking deeply to be able to see the roots and the origins. So looking into ill-being, we can understand the nature of ill-being. We can see the path that leads to the ill-being, and we are motivated by the desire to avoid that path. I don't want to suffer like this anymore. I don't want to keep walking down that path leading to suffering. I want to find a different path, a path that leads to well-being. That's why, once you have seen the path that leads to ill-being, you can see at the same time the path that leads to well-being. It is a completely different path. In Buddhism, we call this path leading to well-being Marga path, the noble eightfold path. The noble eightfold path. This is the fourth noble truth. Who 
path that's leading not to ill-being but to well-being. So the second truth and the fourth, fourth truth can be described in terms of paths. The second one is the path leading to ill-being and the fourth is the noble path that leads to well-being, the third truth. And why is this path described as noble? Because it leads us to well-being, to happiness. And this second path, the second truth is a path that is different. It's not noble. So we can call it the ignoble path. So this is the basic teaching of the Buddha about the Four Noble Truths. If we follow the path of the Second Truth, we suffer. If we follow the path of the Fourth Truth, we will taste happiness. When we look into the First Truth, we see the Second and the Fourth and the Third. That's why that First Noble Truth of Suffering is noble, because with it we can find the path leading to well-being. The second truth is awareness of suffering. Suffering is the object of our meditation in the second truth. We need to put some time and energy into looking into the suffering and then we will be able to obtain this insight, this wisdom about suffering. And when that wisdom comes, when that understanding comes, compassion and love are born. And this is easy enough to see. Look at this person. It could be our own father, our mother, our partner. If we have enough time, enough calmness to look deeply, we will see the suffering of that person. That person has a lot of suffering in him and her. And she doesn't know how to handle that suffering. He's not a practitioner, and that's why he has become the victim of his suffering. She suffers, she makes herself suffer, and she makes others suffer. Do you think she wants, you might think she wants to make people suffer, but it's not true. A person who doesn't know how to handle his suffering makes others suffer. That's completely natural. That person is a, the first victim 
of his or her suffering, and you are merely the second victim. So, looking, we can see the suffering in him or her, and we understand why that person said things like that, or did things like that, that may have made us suffer. Maybe she didn't want to say that, maybe he didn't want to do that, but the suffering in him or her was too great, and that's why he said those things, that's why she did those things. So this understanding that is born in us, thanks to our deep look into the suffering, helps us to generate the energy of compassion for others. They suffer. They don't know how to handle their suffering. Nobody has helped this person until now. Maybe I'm the first person who's going to help. So recognizing suffering, understanding suffering, gives rise to compassion. And when compassion is born in your heart, you don't suffer anymore. You no longer want to punish that, that person. You're not angry with him or her anymore because compassion has already arisen in your heart. And when compassion is there in your heart, you don't suffer anymore. It is the nectar that transforms you. And how, how is that energy of understanding born in you? Because you have looked into the suffering and you've understood the suffering and that's why the compassion has been born. That's the secret of the practice, generating compassion. And how? How do we generate compassion? Look at the suffering. Look at the suffering in yourself. Understand the suffering in yourself. And then you have compassion for yourself. When you have understood your own suffering, it will be much easier to understand his suffering or her suffering. When you look, you'll be able to see the suffering of that other person right away. And that understanding of suffering will change you. That understanding of the suffering in him or her will give rise to compassion in you, and then you will be able to look at that person with the eyes of compassion. When you look in that way, you don't suffer anymore. You only suffer when you look with hatred or anger. But with compassion in your eyes, you can look at that very same person and you don't suffer at all, because you're protected by the compassion. Understanding and compassion are healing. They heal you and they heal the world. And how can we have that compassion? By contemplating suffering.
afraid of suffering, if we seek to escape, to run away from suffering, we have no chance. So we have to come back to ourselves and begin to be in touch with the suffering in us, in ourself. We need to look to be able to recognize the deep causes of this suffering. And that wisdom will help us to generate compassion. And as you are suffering less, you'll be able to look at the other person and understand the other person, and you can help him or her to suffer less. So this deep connection between suffering and happiness is very clear. We need the mud to produce lotuses. We need suffering to generate compassion, which gives us happiness. What is happiness? Happiness is made of understanding and love. There are people who have a lot of money, a lot of fame, but they suffer a lot. They have a lot of power, a lot of fame, a lot of money, but they suffer enormously because in them, in them there is not enough understanding and love. So understanding and love, these are the elements that form the basis of happiness. A person who doesn't have understanding is hard to live with. A person who doesn't have compassion is completely cut off from the world without compassion. We cannot get in touch with other beings. We are completely isolated, cut off. We cannot have relationships with people. We are totally alone. So the fundamental, basic condition of happiness is compassion. If you have compassion in your heart, you're a happy person. It's very clear. Even if you don't have a lot of money, a lot of fame, a lot of power, you're a happy person because you have a lot of compassion. And how do we produce compassion? To have compassion, we have to look at suffering. We need to listen to suffering. And if you try to run away, you'll have no chance to look or to listen. So the practitioner who 
knows how to suffer, suffers much less. And he knows how to make good use of the suffering to benefit from it through creating, producing compassion. We say the kingdom of God is a place where there's no suffering. I, I don't see, I don't see it that way. For me, the kingdom of God has suffering in it. But the people in that kingdom know how to make good use of suffering to produce compassion and joy. Let's suppose you were to send your children to a land where there is no suffering. There's no suffering in that place. How will your children will be able to how will your children be able to learn how to love? If your child doesn't know how to understand how to love, he's going to suffer because without understanding and love, happiness is something impossible. So I don't wish to send my children to a land where there's no suffering. I want to send a child to a place where there are lots of people who know how to suffer, who know how to use suffering to produce their own happiness and the happiness of others. For, so for me, the kingdom of God also has suffering, and we can speak of the benefit of suffering. Suffering can be a positive thing that can help us a lot. Just like the left and the right, if there is no right, there is no left. If politically you are on the left, you should not wish for the right to disappear. So the practitioner has the capacity to create joy and happiness. A practitioner also has the capacity to take care of and handle the suffering and make good use of the suffering. 